from Green Biz Group, welcome to Center Stage, the best of live interviews from Green Biz events. I'm Joel McCower. Again, it's not just about how do we build energy storage or battery storage in any particular place. It's about how do you do that in conversation with a community that is as much concerned about an individual, but as it is about the larger cultural values that have been um, part of its, uh, its, its history and livelihood and way of being in a particular space over time. Maxine Burkett is a professor of law at the William S. Richardson School of Law at the University of Hawaii, where she teaches about climate change law and climate justice. She spoke with Frederick Riddell, the energy commissioner for the county of Maui, in a conversation on equitable community renewable energy, moderated by Michelle Moore, the CEO of Groundswell, at the Verge 2018 conference in Hawaii. Let's listen in. Good morning, everybody. Very grateful to be here today with this fantastic panel and with all of you. There's so much expertise at Verge Hawaii. I imagine that any number of you guys could be up here today talking about sharing power with community-based renewable energy. Uh, but to get us started, I actually have a question for you all. Could you please raise your hand if you're involved in or if you're planning to be a part of developing a CBRE project? Let's see, there are a few of you guys out there. Okay, so we have a challenge for y'all and for everyone who's a part of your community. And um, that is uh, to work with us. So we're all working together to make sure that this first eight megawatts of projects in Hawaii is really setting the stage for an extraordinarily successful 64 megawatt next round um, that's making sure these community-based renewable energy projects are reflecting the values of the communities that they serve. And uh, exactly to that point, you know, systems produce outcomes based on the values on which they're founded. And the policy that enables CBREs for Hawaii puts one value squarely at the center of the agenda, and that's inclusiveness. You know, inclusiveness for participating in solar, uh, other types of renewable energy, and the savings associated with that, regardless of uh, what your personal uh, household economics are like. Uh, so to get us going, um, I'd like to ask Fred and Maxine uh, to help us with some agenda setting. And uh, to each of you to share your thoughts about what are the most important values, the most important ideas that community-based renewable energy projects need to be demonstrating uh, for Hawaii and for its local communities. Sure, well, thank you. I think uh, one of the main values, you know, as you're pointing out here, is that it needs to be inclusive. We need to bring everybody into the picture. We have to have equity. We have to you know, allow others to participate that haven't been able to participate already. Um, as many of you guys know, we, we started this you know, transition where a lot of people who were wealthy have been able to participate. Uh, if they owned a home, they were able to get rooftop photovoltaics. Um, if they had a credit score above some level, they were able to, again, participate. And then get savings. And for me, that was, uh, you know, it, it, it's a bit distorted, you know, to be frank about it. it you know, I want to see that everybody actually has an opportunity. The grid was initially a social system where everybody's coming to the grid, uh, taking something from the grid and paying their part. And now where we're at, we have a little bit of a tilt and, and we'll, we see that tilt come back the other direction and allow others to be included. Well, I sure hope so. And that's the success that I'm shooting for. Maxine. Yeah, thanks. I, uh, there are 
there are a couple of thoughts. I mean, one, one is that um, I come to this with a particular lens, right, which is the, the changing climate. And that, I think, will affect how we make decisions about how we create infrastructure and how heavy that infrastructure is. And certainly engagement is important too. Energy is really uh, in service of the cultural values or goals of a community, right? It's uh, not just for energy's sake, it's a, it's a means to an end. And in that regard, it needs to be really mindful of what the purpose of the community is. And I think of um, Kauiki Village a, a lot. There's a very interesting, I think, story there, which is important for us to consider, which is that the uh, renewable energy uh, uh, choices that were made there were about uh, being able to recreate a community that was uh, very dear to the developer and very helpful for the, the members of the community that were moving into that space. It was about creating a space that allowed for trust and responsibility and dignity and sense of community. And in, in some interesting ways, energy was about going slow, it was about connecting. And of course, we're where we are now because energy has been about going fast <laughs> and going hard and being um, pre pretty resource intensive. And so uh, I, I would say that when we're thinking about culture and values and where energy plays into that, again, it's in service of expressing of the community needs and desires. And when creating the new built environment, which is an expression of that culture, we need to keep in mind the communities that are most in need, uh, but also the purposes that they have uh, in, in creating that renewable energy infrastructure. Thank you so much, Maxine. Now, community-based renewable energy, or, or community solar, is what the policies are often called, called in other states. It's fundamentally a 50-state marketplace. And it's a 50-state marketplace multiplied uh, by the number of utility service territories in those particular states, and sometimes even further defined by municipal policies. Um, so it, it's like a crazy quilt. Uh, a little bit challenging to navigate, um, but certainly very beautiful in its expression. But regardless of uh, where you are, uh, what your state policies are, what the incentive structures are, how utilities see these types of projects, um, all of community-based renewable energy projects have the same three fundamental sources of revenue uh, that you have to make to work together in order to get to these values-based expressions that projects can have. Um, one source of revenue, of course, is the electricity revenue that comes from selling the electricity associated with the projects or the storage or grid, grid um, value to it. Another source is federal tax credits. That can be the ITC. In some cases, it can be new market tax credits and potentially even opportunity zones, uh, which are a, a new source of revenue. And the third is state incentives. But making these three things work together in a way that's connecting value to values is an extraordinarily part of expressing good projects. Now, Fred, um, I'd like to ask for you to share a bit about what Maui is doing, and not just what you're doing, uh, but why. Sure, absolutely. Well, I, uh, a little bit about the why. Uh, I started this position about uh, two and a half years ago, and uh, I did see a a disconnect between uh, some people that had that opportunity and some people that didn't. And I, I definitely saw this you know, on Molokai. And I thought to myself, well, gosh, how can, how can these people participate? How can we make sure that uh, what we're doing you know, still serves you know, everybody that, that needs it? And when I saw uh, you know, extension cords going from one house to another, generators connected uh, to the house, uh, no meter installed, I thought to myself, you know, uh, we need to make sure that everybody actually has the right access at the right price and the right opportunities for electricity. Uh, so that's a little bit about my why. So now what, what are we doing and what are we trying to achieve um, is, is trying to really realize, uh, you know, let's say 
a, a gift that you have from the PUC that says, here's an opportunity. Now, can you make this work, right? And I saw some developers looking at this saying, well, there's not enough in it for me. There's not enough in it for the developer. Why am I going to do this? And I'm thinking to myself as a, as a recovering developer, gosh, you're lazy. Um, this is a, uh, you know, an opportunity. Again, you just need to figure out what's the right way to make this work. How do you, you know, get those values in there? So the county you know, has resources that can help make this work, and we can leverage that in a resiliency way. Uh, so first, of course, the county has uh, a lot of utility bills. We can participate in this. Many people look at uh, across the country using uh, you know, anchor tenant models. I look at that as I would prefer it to be a fungible anchor tenant. I don't want uh, that anchor tenant just to sit in there and then remove that opportunity for a big portion of participation. So I, I think, well, sure, the anchor tenant can be there. The county can be there with a good credit rating. You can, on day one finance, so the program doesn't die on the vine while you're waiting to get participants, while you're waiting to get, say, 90% subscribers, and then you can perhaps meet a condition precedent to start your financing, you know, that, that's going to be clunky. So you have to find a way to, to make that faster. Then, of course, the county has uh, land. And as we know, land is expensive you know, in, in Hawaii. And that's a big chunk of it. And if you have to pile that in, there's somebody that's got this benefit that's you know, perhaps outside of the community, not part of it. And so to the extent that the county has resources, we should look at can we use those at an extremely low cost for this purpose of targeting low to moderate income people to participate in these programs. And so some of my thoughts there, of course, uh, to have sort of a double benefit is we don't use renewable energy on any of our, our you know, community centers. Why? Well, the NEM pro, the net energy metering program, it wouldn't have made sense because you didn't have a big load there. Right? We didn't have a, uh, you know, very much uh, energy, but you have all this space. And, and so I look at this as, well, here's a host facility. Well, does, does that make another, is there another benefit? Well, gosh, those are some of the places in a disaster that people will congregate to. Can this be a resiliency hub? In the future you know, program, you'll see that it comes up to have storage included. You know, we could really look at you know, that this could be a community benefit. It could help in all these areas. We can, we can leverage you know, multiple uses out of it and really have a, a beautiful project. And I don't think that you have to just sit back and wait for it to be great for the developer. And I think you make some great points, and there's some of the ideas that you're exploring for Maui, too, and that I think are also expressing some of the best practices that we see in other parts of the country, where municipalities take the lead, you know, really using what they have in abundance together as a community, um, putting that on the table and using that as leverage uh, to make sure that the values, the benefits, this kind of broader definition of beauty for the community are present in the way the projects operate. And that you bring up a great point about resilience as well because of course the the course of this policy um, naturally is going to uh, incentivize energy storage and that's one part of resilience a very important part uh, but it's not the only one and um, so Maxine can you share your thoughts to help folks who are thinking about developing these projects you know really inform how they can express the broader cultural values as well in the way these projects enable resilience Sure, and I'll just take a, a quick step back. We'll first say that you know there are so many definitions of resilience now. It's sort of hard to capture one, and it's it's becoming kind of like sustainability. What do we mean when you say resilience? And if we just take the very bare definition of sort of the ability to rebound after some kind of external shock, a significant shock, then the question is, what are you rebounding 
to back to, and is that possible? And of course, I, I do climate change. That's the way, and climate justice issues and the on policy of it. What we understand about climate change is that uh, we are not in a steady state. We probably never really were. It's you know the climate's dynamic, but of course, this is completely different in that. The climate is changing, the rate of change is increasing, so things are moving much more quickly, and baselines are shifting pretty rapidly. So the, the notion of rebounding, it has to be problematized, right? It's a bit different than what we used to, to think of rebounding to mean. Uh, we are in, sort of, we've gotten out of the, the normal cycle of, of ice ages. Uh, we are finding odd events happening, like uh, one that I mentioned, um, Pretty significantly, you know, they're, they're on a King Tide day in, in, in southern Florida, there's a there was an octopus that sort of floated into the parking garage, and colleagues of mine were saying it instead of describing the climate uh, issues and the, the the new kinds of, of climate surprises that are presented uh, as elephants in the room that we need to talk about, there are octopuses in the parking garage. So the octopus in the parking garage, in this context, is what do we mean when we say resilience? Uh, if resilience and culture may, or, or justice may take you in different directions. And so the perfect example of that is um, post-Katrina New Orleans. It was probably, uh, in thinking about whether or not to to build again in the Ninth Ward uh, in areas that were quite marginal, where, where African-American communities were there precisely because they were marginal, there were no other places that they could build. Uh, is it is it resilient to go back to that community? Uh, that, that answer is probably no, that's not the resilience decision, but of course the cultural decision, the generations of culture that sprung from that community would suggest that uh, it is resilient for the culture, uh, for, the, for the values that were part of that, to think about staying. And so that's not to say that uh, you, you continue to be in a, a space that is uh, that is vulnerable, especially again as the climate changes and we have to be thinking about relocation and managed retreat, um, but that you have to weigh those, you have to have difficult conversations. And so that's relevant to this conversation because again, it's not just about how do we build energy storage, um, or battery storage in any particular place. It's about how do you do that in conversation with a community that is as much concerned about an individual, but as it is about the larger cultural values that have been um, part of its, uh, its, its history and livelihood and way of being in a particular space over time. To your point, there's some wonderful tools that are emerging to help communities to do that um, and to do it without having to reinvent the wheel over and over again, right? Because the right answers are often very locally driven, you know, based on local culture, uh, based on local needs and priorities. Um, but the way that you get there, you can find a lot of commonality. And uh, the city of Baltimore, uh, where Groundswell is developing a project that incorporates energy storage, um, pioneered what they call a resilience hub program. And uh, the woman who developed that program is now with the Urban Sustainability Directors Network. Uh, there's a wonderful white paper uh, online that they've published, and they have tools and resources available uh, to help other communities approach creating Resilience Hub the same way. And um, exactly uh, to, to, your, to your thought, Maxine, a fundamental tenet of that program is, is consultation, um, so that you're not putting a resilience center with, uh, with renewable energy, with storage, in a place that people aren't comfortable going to, or maybe a place that's owned or managed by an institution that local people don't trust. So that simple things uh, really matter, and there's some great um, idea sharing uh, programs that are emerging to help implement. And before we go on to our last couple of questions here, Elaine, I'd like to go to you and see if there are any questions from the sidebar. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so 
Yes, and one is a little bit more technical, but I'm gonna fuse in something that might be relevant for Maxine as well. Um, obviously the islands have a very ambitious commitment toward you know, 100% clean ground transportation very quickly. Um, so wondering if there's an intersection between transportation electrification and community-based renewables and whether or not there's an ability to help disenfranchise communities through that intersection or that sort of holistic approach. Fred. Oh, you want to try that one? Yeah, go for okay. it. Okay. Um, well, I think, uh, yeah, <laughs> there's a couple different ways to look at that. I have this, you know, let's say crazy opinion that, uh, you know, when we first start talking about the electrification of transportation, that it isn't already preordained that that electricity comes from the, the grid directly. So if they're intersecting through the grid, um, you know, there's a little bit to pull apart there. But um, to the extent that uh, these projects could be located, you know, in, in places where we're, we're also using those resources to charge electric vehicles, uh, it, it would be a really interesting idea if somehow you could perhaps through, through that bill charge in different locations uh, throughout the islands and uh, you know, sort of bridge that economy across from community-based renewable energy to transportation, but not necessarily have to do it at your home. Because I think you, you, you would definitely have that ability, of course, if you're charging at home, to, uh, to have that, you know, that benefit. But you know, for many people, you might not have the opportunity to charge at home. What we did see you know, on Maui is that, that a good chunk of the people who currently participate in our electric vehicle charging station there, the EV Ohana uh, system, you know, uh, need that network because they, they also don't have a place to charge. People thought that electric vehicles are this thing for all of the wealthy people. They're only the, the ones using it, but that wasn't what we found. So I, I, I think it's something to explore and see if, if there's a way to make that work. And it's a great extension of this whole idea of sharing power. Um, because ultimately, you know, that is a, that's a fundamental goal and a fundamental potential of community-based renewable energy. And you can think about how you express that idea of sharing power. You know, to me, it's, it's uh, you know, very simply, how do we use our energy systems? Uh, how do we use our knowledge, expertise, and technology? You know, as a way to live up to the challenge to love our neighbor as ourselves. Um, sharing power can be in the way the project finance uh, structure comes together. You know, Fred has put an idea on the agenda that's using the municipality itself uh, as, a, as an anchor off-taker, as an anchor tenant. Um, there are other approaches, like the one that we're using, that treat the project financial structure as a little utility instead of a big rooftop, kind of taking um, uh, consumer credit scores off the table as an obstacle for the get-go. Another you know, important idea is about sharing power when we think about subscription structures. Um, there are options to uh, use voluntary consumer cross subsidies, so your low income customers in for free essentially, uh, with market rate customers serving as your anchor tenant. And then there are ideas for how you share power with the governance of the project itself. You know, what kind of community benefits are you baking in uh, to contractual structures? And what kind of benefits are you baking in um, from a project performance requirements perspective? Uh, particularly when you're putting your land up um, and you have the ability to drive those kinds of requirements in from a contractual perspective. And so Fred and Maxine, 
um, I'd like to ask each of you, you know, to share a couple of uh, closing thoughts before we go to a final question, uh, if we have a little time here, to um, for how these projects need to share power, um, both from a transactional perspective, um, but also in terms of uh, sort of governance. Yeah, I mean, I think I'll just reiterate that that conversation is going to be important, having uh, people at the table right at the outset and not have it sort of be a decorative piece of that process, but actually a really core one. It seems to me, from, from my understanding of the, the way renewable energy rollout is happening in Hawaii, which, frankly, I just I want to say that the equity discussion is happening and, that's a, and the community-based discussion is happening in a really robust way, and that's something to celebrate, and it's actually a great model for other places that are similarly situated and need to know how to do this well. So I, I want to say that's a good thing and then to continue to incorporate these processes and streamline them so that they become more of a gatekeeping role than one that's thought about afterwards. In other words, the first question is, is this, is this systemic and sufficient in order to serve the entire community and not see the low income as one element of it, but actually a core part of what makes this the fabric of this um, entire state and certainly island by island. So that, that consultative process will be key. I think uh, sharing power, I kind of think about the statement, I think, um, you know, the, the power that individuals can have in this is, especially in, in the market like this, is that you start to get to make a choice. You get to, you get to say, um, you know, some of that hedging in the future or some of that fuel that is going to be used, I'm choosing that it's going to be from this community-based renewable energy uh, project. And that's going, going to give people some amount of control. The structure that we currently have pushes all of the risk um, you know, to the, the rate payer without the rate payer really being able to make many choices. And so we did see that some class of those people did get to make choices in the recent years, but really we're opening this up. And it's not gonna be just, to, as you're saying, to just those low to moderate income people, but eventually, Many people, everybody, should be able to say, I'm participating in this. I'm making this choice. I have that power to choose this. Well, and ultimately, it is an extraordinary way for our energy systems um, by becoming more distributed and distributed in a way that's more economically equitable as well um, to be able to meet the local needs uh, of a community or of a people and uh, also to be integrated in a way that's very appropriate in terms of the place, um, reflecting place-based values. So we have two minutes and 30 seconds left. Elaine, uh, is there one more question from the sidebar you'd like to throw our way? It's interesting because we had a virtual poll that um, surveyed those online about do, do you have community power like community solar, community wind, community storage um, in your local area? And 0% said, yes, I get my power from local community choice aggregators or another community power program. 8.3% said, yes, but I don't use it. And 58.3% said no. And 33.3% said, don't know. So clearly, you know, a lot of our audience is not engaged in this. Um, our audience is from all over the world, so some of it may not be as applicable, but the point is really more a question of how do you get more adoption? Is how, how can we get more engagement? Well, 
and and it's a and it's a great point, and it's very interesting to hear uh, what the audience statistics came back as from that quick poll, because ultimately, um, community-based renewable energy, community solar, uh, in particular, is the most widely adopted structure right now, is still very emergent. You know, there may be 150 projects in the entire United States available today. And so for some folks who aren't aware or who aren't participating, it may just be a matter of it's not legal in their state yet. Um, or it may be a matter of um, it's legal, but there's only one project and it's serving seven and a half households. Um, but I think that for, for Hawaii, but, you know, particularly with the extraordinary leadership goals uh, that the state has set um, for climate and for clean energy, it's an opportunity to pioneer um, how your neighbors elsewhere uh, on the mainland can do this work and do it even better. Uh, not only because of the extraordinary thoughtfulness of leaders like Maxine, you know, who challenge us to think bigger about what community power means, um, leaders like Fred, um, who are leading the way, you know, leveraging the abundance and the strength of a municipality to set the play and to challenge others to follow with high road projects as well. Um, but with what you're going to be able to do here with energy storage, uh, that's far beyond uh, what's feasible economically in other marketplaces. So I look forward to being back at Verge Hawaii in coming years and have those statistics through the roof. Um, maybe not people who are using it, but definitely people who want it. Um, and to hear all about how Hawaii is uh, setting the play um, for every other state to follow. Thank you, guys. You've been listening to Maxine Burkett, Frederick Riddell, and Michelle Moore talk about community equity in renewable energy at the Verge Hawaii Conference in June 2018. For more Center Stage podcasts, go to greenbiz.com slash center stage. And while you're there, tune into GreenBiz 350, our weekly podcast covering the news and the people behind the news in sustainable business and clean technology. For all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening.